Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is David Bell. Dr. David Bell retired from his consultant post at the Tavistock in 2021, and he developed and led the Fitzjohns Unit, a specialist service for the most complex and severe adult cases referred to the Tavistock. He is past president of the British Psychoanalytical Society, and he lectures and publishes on a wide range of subjects, including the work of Freud, Klein, and Bion, and the understanding of severe psychological disorder. He served two terms as clinical and academic staff representative on the Tavistock Council of Governors, and in that role, in 2018, he wrote a report highly critical of the Tavistock Gender Development Service, JIDS. This was part of a chain of circumstances involving a growing number of colleagues and organizations which led to the increasing public concern about JIDS, resulting in the judicial review and finally the decision by NHS England following the CAS review to close the service. He has remained deeply involved in thinking about the current debate over gender dysphoria in children and adolescents, trying to maintain thoughtful and psychoanalytic perspective in a highly toxic and politicized climate. He has published papers and given many lectures on this subject. I welcome David Bell to Savage Minds. The last time you came on the show, David, everything was kicking off with the Tavistock. Now, in the aftermath of what has happened, do you have any thoughts about what the conclusions have been for the diagnosis of gender dysphoria amongst children? Yeah, well, of course, it's not uh, children. It's, it's, it's what I call children and, and young people, because um, uh, we know that young people, at least up to the age of about 24, 25, are still developing psychologically, socially, and uh, in terms of their brain development. So um, these are the people who are, are the most vulnerable, really, in terms of making uh, or being pressured into making irreversible decisions. Um, so I, I, a lot has happened. Um, I can't remember when the interview was, but the, the main things that have happened uh, is that the uh, CAS review has produced its, um, what is called its um, interim report, but... The final report, I'm quite sure, it's not likely to be at all different to what's in the interim report. It may be, you know, developed a little, but the main message is, and this is the biggest review of gender services for children and young people ever taken anywhere in the world. It took about two years to complete. So um, Hilary Cass is a former president of the Royal College of... Um, Pediatrics and Child Health uh, led this review, and the the main the main points really are that the gender serve the National Gender Service at the Tavistock, which of course is it, it is a very similar service in many other countries, um, but the uh, she obviously reviewed the Tavistock and she found that they were giving the wrong treatment, and it was the wrong model. And they were inappropriately affected by ideolo by political ideology, and this had led to uh, neglect of the children's and the young people's needs, with them being uh, a model being used that's commonly called affirmation. And affirmation, what people mean by this is that the the, the child or young person who says, for instance, that they're uh, they're a girl who says. Um, 
I hate my body, I'm a boy. Um, the, the, they would be affirmed, that is, we agree with you. And we're going to help you change. Well, she, Cass's view, and of course, it's a view of many others, including me, of course, is that that's not the approach of a clinician. The clinician has to be neutral. And this was this was the consequence of a clinical service being um, overwhelmingly contaminated by, by an ideology that damaged the children. So she supported that. She's agreed that almost all of these children and young people have multiple other problems which weren't being addressed, such as autism, up to 35% in autism spectrum, up to 35% in girls, <clears throat> histories of trauma, <clears throat> bullying, sexual abuse, uh, other psychological problems, uh, family trauma, and so on. All the things that I wrote about in my report and many other people have written about, she agreed. And these children and young people were thus having a double um, uh, bad effect. One is they were being put on the wrong treatment, and two, that their, their actual problems are not being directed. They're not being properly um, uh, addressed. So uh, that has led to a further investigation of the service, and as a result of the um, what's called the Care Quality Commission, um, external managers were sent into the service to oversee the service, um, and there's now there's been a decision to close the service. But the service is still open because, you know, there's, I think there's 8,000 children and young people waiting, and, and it's very hard to know what to do with them. They're going to set up some other regional centres, but that's obviously going to take time. And then hopefully these regional centres will have a, a completely different, well, not hopefully, they will have a completely different approach. So, um, and then the other thing I think that's happened probably since we last spoke was that uh, Sonia Appleby, who was the lead for child safeguarding at the Tavistock, uh, she won her employment tribunal. That was part that was part of the things that led, I think, to the uh, Care Quality Commission going in. And they found that staff were being intimidated and that the um, employment tribunal found that Sonia Appleby couldn't properly do her work as a child safeguarding lead because um, staff on JIS were being told not to talk to her. However, the service still continues, still with the same management, which I find pretty astonishing. Um, and um, But hopefully, you know, they will manage to close the service soon and have a, um, a more appropriate service for young people. But that being said, that means that generation, you know, large numbers of children and young people have had the wrong treatment and had their needs seriously neglected. And that's a terrible indictment of the service. And it's done terrible damage to an institution that I've absolutely loved and continue to love, and that's the Tavistock. But somehow, this um, uh, the the um, gender work, both with adults and in children, has really contaminated the Tavistock. And I'm hoping that they can come out of that and revert back to what they really stood for. When I think of gender dysphoria, I think of the way that it has evolved within the Diagnostic Statistics Manual, the latest version, number five, having that change from gender identity disorder to gender dysphoria. Aside from the linguistic shifts, within those linguistic shifts are also empirically 
pointed and even clinically evaluated ideas within in terms of what does this mean? How can this be treated perhaps? And what the landscape is for what I view to be a sociological narrative rendered medical. Many people do. I joked about this the other week on Twitter, and I said that I wanted my identity as a Scorpio protected by the GRA. And I, I was joking simply because why aren't we protecting Scorpios? We're maligned. People make fun of us. Yes, there are people who actually very much identify with their zodiac signs. My point here is that we have taken a sociological construction, gender, and, and made it into something else. And when I say we, I guess I should be more specific and go back to John Money, the 1950s. There was some medical currency to be had in creating new domains. This was post-World War II. There was a lot of experimentation happening within all sorts of the social sciences and the medical scientific fields. People were interested in making names for themselves. John Money created a concept that he pulled out of thin air effectively, but one would also argue, as many feminists do, that this concept was baited and, and very much rooted upon sexism. So this is my question to you. How is it that a sociological construct has been entirely medicalized? And what does this mean for the future of something that I feel has been not only misnamed, but since when do we give people on-demand hormones because they think that will make them what they believe themselves to be. In other words, does the NHS have a program for kleptomaniacs where they are given a visa gold? Are survivors of Stockholm Syndrome handed a marriage certificate because they're in love with their kidnapper? And there's all sorts of paradigms that I might be able to pull out. I said the other day when we spoke on the phone, while I was doing work on suicide bombers in the West Bank, I was living in the Christian quarter, the Armenian quarter of Jerusalem, and I found out that where I lived on the roof on December 31st, 1999, were many, 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 many people who came on that roof specifically to give birth to Jesus in what is known as Jerusalem syndrome, something I had no clue about. But these are all sociological paradigms that have been manifested as psychological or psychiatric disorders. So how is it, David, that gender became diagnosed, even named, based on what were then in the 1950s, very problematic views of women, of sex, of sexism, of misogyny, and of homophobia, all that. And, and then today, where the cure is to make that patient into what they think they are. I think there's a lot of different things contained in what you've said. And I think probably it needs, a, as I would see it, a bit of, of unpacking. So the first thing that I would say is that all psychiatric disorders, all psychiatric disorders take place on, about, on the border between the individual and their culture. So there's no culture-free psychiatric syndrome. That includes schizophrenia, depression, anxiety disorder. That, 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 um, and if we come to um, 
the issue of gender, then and sexuality, of course, it's not that long ago that homosexuality was seen as a disorder uh, and there were treatments for this disorder. So that's a very good example. Now, homosexuality is nowhere in um, in, in Europe, at least, um, seen as a disorder or, or America. I mean, hardly anywhere in the world. I mean, it, it is in Iran, for example. But um, So why has that changed? Did that change because psychiatry developed? No, it changed because the cultural context changed. Uh, and so homosexuality is no longer a disorder. With gender and gender dysphoria, it becomes even more complicated because there's a kind of peculiar double narrative. On the one hand, uh, people who uh, feel the need to transition claim they have an illness that needs treatment and they must have, a, a, you know, there's increasing campaigns for people to get private treatment and for that to be funded so that they can be treated quickly. On the other hand, they claim that it's not a psychiatric disorder, so they don't need treatment. And they, you know, the, the ideological movement very much doesn't want psychiatrists and psychotherapists and psychologists to intervene in a neutral way, they only want them to intervene, so to speak, on side, that is to support the wish for transition. But that, of course, is not a proper kind of psychological intervention. So it, gender disorder, as far as the trans lobbies are concerned, is a kind of ticket, calling it that, colluding with it to get treatment, whilst at the same time claiming that they know what the treatment is that they need. Whereas, of course, an independent clinician should have a you know, a neutral view. So that's it's rather complicated in that way. When it comes to young people, I'm reasonably happy with calling it a disorder in that I don't see how else young people can get treatment. But I'm not when I call it a disorder, the disorder isn't that they're in the wrong sex and they need to be changed. The disorder is that they're in a very unhappy and difficult and disturbed and very painful relationship with their own sex body. And some of these children and young people are in considerable distress. In many of them, the they have they've had problems for a very long time, but because of the change in the cultural climate, these problems are now badged as gender problems. I, I'm convinced that a significant number of these children, and recently I, I saw some data that probably supports this, that is a falling number of anorexia, of, 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 of girls with anorexia and bulimia, and a rising number of girls with trans. So as a psychotherapist and psychoanalyst, I would say, these are probably girls who have a complex and difficult relationship with their sexual body, but the way it gets manifested might be as anorexia, bulimia, in Freud's state with hysteria, and now it's, um, I'm in the wrong body. So I'm happy in that sense with calling them gender dysphoria in order that they can get help from someone who can think about them in a holistic way in terms of the narrative of their lives, their relationship with the families are often extremely disturbed families. And one of the areas that I'm most interested in and most deeply concerned about is misogyny. Because I think the 80% of girls in the UK, I don't know what it is in Europe, but 80% of, of young people who present with gender dysphoria are girls. 
So these are all girls who hate their female sexual body and believe that they can get out of it and become a thing called a man, which of course is a delusion. They can't. So they need help to understand how it is they've come to hate their bodies. And of course, there'll be individual factors, but these individual factors get amplified, resonated by the cultural world in which they are. And I think there's an increasing um, undercurrent, which is part of neoliberalism, where there's a penetration of the commodity form into all forms of life. So that a woman's body becomes, in a sense, commodified. We, we saw this beautifully illustrated in the marvellous interview, if you don't mind my saying so, on your programme, about surrogacy. It was a kind of wake-up call to me. I kind of sensed there was something terribly wrong, but I woke up to it much more on that programme. But I could see also the analogy to gender identity. Again, the female body being treated as a kind of um, commodity that can be changed. Now, I'm not saying, you know, that young girls and young women who have this terrible problem with their body are just making a choice, like going to a supermarket. They are very disturbed, of course, but the culture is amplifying their disturbance and amplifying the ways in which the female body is being so commodified. The most obvious area is the what I would call the normalization of pornography, seen as a liberal value. But of course, it's not, it's not, it doesn't emancipate women, it commodifies their body. As I think one of your presenters said the other day, and I listened to it, a woman's body is not a workplace. So I think a lot of these girls growing up seeing pornography, having demands made upon them by by boys, which you know, is quite a relatively new thing. And often feeling much more they have to fit in with these demands that that's another pressure in which they don't want to be a girl then that gets manifested as gender dysphoria and then when they get caught up with the ideological movement they're seen oh you're one of us you're trans which of course does considerably more damage rather than seeing as a girl who's suffering terribly in relation to her sexual body well i agree with your comparisons between anorexia and bulimia, I would wonder then, are these not all problems of gender being problems of the social gender? And a lot of people, especially the gender advocates out there on the streets, they are often unaware of the great differences between the reasons why girls or young women and then boys and young men begin to identify as transgender. And I have noticed from my research, that the reasons are not at all related. You've indicated, in fact, a huge problem uh, amongst why many girls and young women begin this kind of identification away from the reality of themselves. And they're also identifying, trying to at least identify outside of cultural misogyny, which is pervasive. And it's not surprising that you also mentioned the falling numbers of anorexia and bulimia. Ray Blanchard was on the show and he was telling me that with the acceptance of homosexuality that the two categories that he categorized of transsexual males that the AGP types were 
more prevalent today than the homosexual male varieties in the sense of as homosexuality has become more accepted that that kind of identification out of homosexuality into a gay man identifying as a woman let's say has all but diminished and i'm wondering then how these lobbies have been able to cobble together so many bodies on the streets and so many people chanting even not at all gender dysphoric as you know a lot of the people on the streets are they're hammering away about the rights of tra transgender people it's become like watching a a commercial on TV, you just see publicities everywhere and they're all saying the same things. Drink this, buy that, and gender dysphoria, people are dying at high rates. It's reminiscent of certain kinds of science fiction films I've seen, such yeah. as Brazil, if you've seen that by Terry Gilliam, yeah. where the message is repeated and the message isn't even at all associated with reality. And that makes me worried because you and your colleagues, you are in clinics, you're in private consultations with patients, talking about what are personal issues. And there are very few psychological or psychiatric disorders that are so politicized. Now, I've written about another, and I'm almost afraid to say it. I've said it on the show before, and I, I quiver, you know, I, I am a little fearful of saying what I'm about to say because I get hate mail every time I mention this. But there is one other condition, and I know Simon Wellesley, uh, he used to deal with this before he moved on to the more peaceful field of post-traumatic stress disorder. But Simon used to work on chronic fatigue syndrome. Hmm. And when he started to work on the therapies for that, GET yeah. and CBT uh, behavioral therapies, people were not happy. He received uh, death threats and even bomb threats and had to have his mail ritually passed through metal detectors. And I wrote about, <laughs> I had an interview with him, wrote about it. That piece was pulled in a New York second. So threatened were my editors. It was crazy. And I just thought, wow. So that's a lobby that exists and it's very well organized, extremely well organized. I had no idea how well organized until that day. But we see people clamoring for their own treatment. Now, obviously, to skilled practitioners, therapists, psychoanalysts, psychiatrists, this probably poses a problem because I imagine you all want to learn about your field, learn about each of your patients, and not have people on the street screaming up through the windows telling you what to do. And I am sure, I can only imagine, that a lot of you and your colleagues might even be fearful about what those mobs on the streets might mean for your political and career futures. How did we get here where now we have manifestations trying to direct the NHS or private health insurance decisions in the US, let's say, and public health care and what is and what is not considered a mental illness, even that, we're not mentally ill, say many trans activists. Exactly. They're not mentally ill, but they want treatment. But the treatment is to be given, is to have major surgery into a, uh, so that they can trans into a body that appears to be of the opposite sex. Yes, and that's the paradox where one wants to be given all the fittings of what would be considered someone who is mentally ill, 
um, just as the Scottish surgeon was told finally, you must stop giving people amputations, even if they identify as not having an arm from this point onward. That was viewed as a forbidden task. He was prohibited. Somehow this, though, is good. He was prohibited. This was, I believe, David Smith from Scotland. This was a case where he was giving amputations to patients who claimed to have body identity integrity disorder. I don't think it's forbidden in America. I would doubt many things are forbidden in America where, in fact, medicine is a capitalist project. This is another yeah. problem, right? Um, you have people uh, on one side of the pond arguing that something be declassified as a mental illness, removed from the DSM, yet the NHS should take care of us. In the States, they know that the minute they clamor for that, that the insurance companies will simply not cover them. So that clamoring is a lot less loud. I think the number of states in, in, in America that, were, that will do, um, they mandate the private insurance companies to cover uh, gender, gender medicine as it's, um, or gender health care is the biggest, I think the biggest, uh, um, the most rapidly expanding private health industry in the States. The clinic's opening all the time. And so um, one of the things, I don't know if you know the article by the paper by Lisa Marciano called The New Hysteria. Um, she makes the point there, and I'm convinced that it's a correct point, is that there's a, a peculiar organic relationship between the provision of services and the incidence of the disorder. So if we were to set up, if if you know, a few doctors got very interested in hysteria and started setting up hysteria clinics. I can guarantee that in a very short time, there'd be more and more people presenting with hysteria. And we need more and more people um, uh, to be trained to treat people with hysteria. So there's, it's a funny thing about psychological problems. Freud knew about this. He talked about the young, and it's, it's a particularly female thing for reasons we don't, well, I don't understand. But you see it in, 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 in girls' schools, in girls' boarding schools. You know, one child gets something and then everyone else gets it. For described fainting fits uh, among, uh, among girls in, in a school. So we, we find that there is this peculiar cultural transmission. And the more you provide resources, the more you kind of say, this is a real disorder that we need to treat, the more people start having the disorder. We saw that a bit with... Um, um, false memory syndrome, where lots of people suddenly had false memory syndrome. That is, they be they, they they were taught to believe they'd be the they were informed that they by unscrupulous therapists that they'd been abused as children when they hadn't. So there needed to be all these false memory syndromes and false memory clinics. And it kind of died away. So there's always this peculiar um you know cultural impact on all forms of psychological disorder. And you, you mentioned um, chronic fatigue syndrome. You see, I think chronic fatigue syndrome was not one thing. I think it was many, many, many different things. And, and um, you know, some of which perhaps we've understood a little better, some not. Um, uh, and of course, amongst the people suffering from it, um, 
they were, you know, one doesn't want to be misunderstood. And it's quite easy to get misunderstood as saying that their suffering isn't real or the problem isn't real. But one, one may have various different understandings of the problem, whether one thinks... I mean, I think it's a bit false to make huge distinctions between when it comes to these kinds of things, psychology and biology, because they're so much connected. But certainly, you know, um, a lot of people have had you know, quite successful treatment and others, that treatment hasn't worked and we don't know. But it isn't helped, as you say, by this kind of um, peculiar group pathology, which serves not to aid further understanding and thinking of a problem, but to close off thinking that, that they don't agree with. And that's, of course, what's happened with the whole trans movement, which is hugely funded by billionaires. You know, I mean, the one person who writes about this is Jennifer Bielek, um, who's been following where, where the funding comes from and how it is that these trans movements have captured um, organisations such as the NHS, universities, companies, and so on. So they sign up to Stonewall and become um, LGBT champions. This is all part of a very carefully orchestrated campaign. And what one notices is that they rarely appear in debates because that's not the way forward. They would lose debates. What they tend to do is work through um, getting influence. So on, say, uh, schools, universities, NHS, government departments. And they do that in a very artful way. I mean, they've had a lot of advice on this, I think, from a, um, a legal firm whose name I've forgotten. It might be Dixon's or Dexter's were very involved in the early stages of this. But you can't, I, I've probably got that name. Denton's. That's right. That's right. So um, it's been very, very carefully orchestrated. And what happens is a lot of people in high places fall in with this quite unwittingly. I mean, I suppose that's the thing that's breathtaking, but they do. And often they have good motives. They really don't understand what's happening. So they get an organisation comes to them and say, well, you remember what happened with homosexuality and how homosexuals were discriminated against. So the same thing is now happening with trans people. Don't you want your organisation to be a liberal organisation which you know people can be free to express themselves? Oh, yes, yes, we're very much on that side. Yes, yes, yes. Well, what you need to do is become a Stonewall champion. So you need to um, fill in lots of questionnaires, have us inspect you, pay us lots of money. And then after you've paid us some money and we've agreed and done the um, investigation and told you what you need to do and told you that we need to monitor you every year and you pay us even more money, then you can put up on your letterhead where Stonewall champions. Savislot was a Stonewall champion. But what the people don't realise is that in doing this, they're colluding with a, a, a kind of religious cult which claims, for instance, that people can be born in the wrong body. And the only treatment for them is to reshape their body. And anything, anyone who doesn't agree with that is discriminating against them. So if you don't agree, for example, that a trans woman is a woman, then that's a form of discrimination. So if you're the Tavistock and you said that a trans woman isn't a woman, 
you'd probably be faced disciplinary proceedings, as you would in many places. Recently, that's been a bit overturned through some legal judgments, which have, have um, set that a bit more right, and the individuals uh, are free to have that view without it being uh, a, a basis for discrimination or action against them. But it's amazing how the trans movement has managed to capture organization in this way. And a lot of organizations haven't woken up to it yet. I think, I mean, and interesting, the BBC has a bit, because after they did, um, had a series of programs um, looking at Stonewall, that, that carried out by an investigative journalist in Belfast, the BBC withdrew their um, connection to Stonewall. And, and some other organisations are gradually doing that. But I think they fell into it without thinking. Of course, the big amplifier, which wasn't there even 10 years ago, to the extent it is now, is social media. Because social media acts as a fantastic amplifier of these things. And people... We know that if you're on social media, you get caught in a bubble. You only get information about the things that you already believe. And you're not out there debating, discussing. And people very quickly, especially young, I'd say young people and children, but also adults who have various kinds of you know psychological difficulties, easily get drawn into these, these kinds of movements, which give them a place of belonging, gives them an explanation for all their problems. But of course, it's a false explanation. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Well, you mentioned false memory syndrome, and that hasn't been entirely debunked because if you've paid attention to the Islin Maxwell trial for sex trafficking in relationship to Jeffrey Epstein, in her defense, I don't know if you're aware of this, was Elizabeth Loftus. No, I didn't notice that. <laughs> who still pushes this theory that was allowed in the court. And oftentimes, this theory of false memory syndrome is allowed in the family courts in the UK. I'm working on other oh, projects really? around the BPS, yes, and the family court system. It's scandalous. So this is what, you know, I asked you about the way in which social conditions are encoded or even the fact you mentioned Lisa Marciano's other article, but she's well, very well known when she came onto the scene of this issue for her work on the contagion effect amongst young adults and children, ROGD, rapid onset gender dysphoria. And that too speaks to me because what I am witnessing on the streets is that this is the new tattoo or the new lip piercing of the 90s. This is, you know, we can go back in time. Well, you know, once upon a time, people wore bell bottoms and had mood rings. That was far less somatically dangerous. But we are in an era where pushing the limits on shock, which young people do, not just kids and adolescents, but people in their early 20s do this too. To what degree is medicine aiding and abetting a kind of social revolution instead of saying, hey, you want to be treated like a girl? Shut up. 
<laughs> you know, like, I hate to say it, David, but sometimes I think about all of these surgeries and hormones and the harms that they bring forth, and no one's talking about that. We will have episode after episode on not just BBC and ITV and every channel in the world about global warming and the impact on water reserves and is your water poisoned and all of that. But no one is talking about the somatic harms from synthetic hormones. Never. You never hear about it. And so I do have to wonder why major media, it's not, you know, people are after the Tavistock, but I've been arguing for some time that the real actors in this are the PR machinery tools, which is basically legacy media promoting this mindlessly. As you mentioned, the BBC has been on board for so long. Then during lockdown, they switched off. They stopped supporting mermaids. They took mermaids off their servers. I wrote a piece on this because they cleansed their servers, as did the BBC. You had a lot of national organizations in the UK just wiping their servers clean of any kind of support for some of the more contentious organizations. Stonewall, what a paradox. Now you heard the show, the last podcast we did. The paradox there is that Stonewall does not know what a woman is when it's promoting its trans agenda, but when it promotes its surrogacy agenda, it absolutely knows what a woman is. It's lying to its very constituents. And this is the thing that is so outrageous to me because I fought for the rights of gay men and lesbians my entire adult life, only to find myself, as many of my other fellow gay men and women, we feel betrayed because what the hormonalization or the telling girls to just wear chest binders or pack under your, your underpants, it's one step away from a very overt form of homophobia. So this is my question in terms of, I understand that there are adolescents and young people, even adults who feel distress with their bodies. But why are we focusing this on gender alone? For instance, my question might be, why is this not just under an umbrella term of body dysmorphia? Why could this not be under an umbrella that also incorporates anorexia, bulimia? Why is it when people go to seek treatment for gender dysphoria, they've already read up online or have been in a Reddit group, they already know exactly how many visits they have to have as they want their hormones. But at the same time, wouldn't the clinician, knowing what Lisa Littman's research evidence is about ROGD, wouldn't there be now a cautionary approach and say, well, no, you just want to have hormones because every single mate of yours is on hormones because hormones today in many schools, and I've talked to people, parents and teachers, they say every one of my kids' friends is on hormones. So, especially in the US, this is the new tattoo. And I don't want to minimize those who actually have dysphoria, but it seems to me that there is a generation now of kids, young people who know exactly what to say to get what they want. And it doesn't seem to me, aside from what's happened with the Tavistock, in countries like the US and Canada, where this is fully on the table, if you dare suggest this shouldn't be slowed down a bit, you'll be called a transphobe, you might lose your job, you probably will lose your job in Canada. What is the approach then when a clinician like Ken Zucker, who did lose his job, 
can't even suggest a watchful waiting approach instead of the affirmative model. Or when we have data from all over the EU and Great Britain to show that clinics are now reining things back because they're seeing what's going on. Like you notice, they too notice too many comorbidities, too many issues of problems from internalized misogyny, uh, family problems, mental health issues, et cetera, et cetera. Why are we running to the hormones and the breast binders and not, you want to be a man, go out there and plow that field? Well, you see, I, I, I agree with you until the end, mm -hmm. because I, I, I think, as I said, all psychological disorders occur on this cusp of what's cultural and what's internal. And I agree with you, you know, when you say that, you know, the whole thing gets peculiarly minimized, you know, as if it's a minor form of plastic surgery. So top surgery, it's called, instead of double vastectomy or um, bottom surgery, instead of removal of pelvic organs and reconstructive surgery. Um, and there's very little interest in what the long-term effects are. You know, many clinicians know of people who've had this surgery and it's all gone wrong and they're left with the consequences, you know, severe urinary problems, for example. Um, so it's major surgery and it gets kind of um, normalized as something rather minor. And that culture is extremely damaging to the interest not only of young people, but of adults. Um, there's been some recent work which has been looking at the long-term effects of cross-sex hormones. And there's uh, the uh, paper I just saw, um, which is going to be presented at a conference. There was an increase in uh, cardiac events and strokes. And uh, the shocking thing is there's not it's, it's not that that might be the case, but that there's not any interest. An ideological movement doesn't really have an interest. So I think you have to have a double focus. That is, you have to think of what's happening culturally, and I agree, you know, I think it's connections with um, the commodification, the pen penetration of the commodity form, neoliberalism. There's also important, the, the whole effects of social media and so on. But then when you've got the individual suffering person, you need a different kind of approach that you've got to be neutral. Um, I agree, you see, that in the schools, there's a tendency if someone says, oh, I've got, you know, I've, I, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy, to instead of saying, okay, you know, you're 12 when you're saying that, well, we accept that you say that, but we're not going to go along with it. I think that would be more helpful than the immediate affirmation, which causes, that's the main location of the damage now. The beginning of the damage is in schools because the trans movements have managed to um, penetrate the schools in terms of sex education and giving you know, very inappropriate sex education to very young kids um, as if this is a great liberal thing to do and including in it, it included in that sex education, is the idea that um, you might not be the gender that you think you are. So that idea is being implanted in young children. That's doing a great deal of damage. But when it comes to the individual who comes to a clinic and is in pain, 
then they need to be respected. And respect from a clinical point of view means accepting their narrative, but going into it with them over time and trying to build a trusting relationship. And of course, you know, there's quite a lot of records of young people entering into psychotherapeutic treatment and changing their minds. You know, over time, discovering aspects of their narrative of their lives that they hadn't thought about enough, which maybe made them very disturbed by the presence of their female sexual body, for example, which they can understand a bit better and come to live with. You know, as as, as one person put it to me, uh, um, I um, I know I'm never going to be happy completely as a woman. At least I don't think I'm going to be. Things might change. So I'll be uncomfortable. But I'd rather be uncomfortable than have parts of my body removed. And of course, she also recognize she might change her mind in five years, as many do. So um, I'm just making that point that once they cross the threshold into the clinic, we need to do all we can to um, understand the position that they're in. So if it's, it, I mean, I don't treat young people, but I contact with people who do. My work is more with adults, but... You know, if a person comes and says, is, who's a girl, and says, my name is John, I would not not call them John. There's just no point. You have got to you know, start from where you are and then try again, find out who John is. So, but that would take time, trust. But what happens is the kids come with a script, not a narrative, a learned script they've learned online, on sometimes even from family members, sometimes even from parents, because they're parents who would rather have a trans child than a gay child, a lesbian child. So they come with scripts. In other words, they come for an assessment, but they, they come, they know what to say in order to get the outcome that they want. Well, as a psychoanalyst, that, that's not completely foreign to me, to meeting people who think they've got to say a certain thing to get the kind of treatment that they want. But, you know, one can work with that, but it takes a lot of time to get through that and find out who they really are and why they really want this. But time and care and attention of that nature is, is often what is not given. You know, I'm peering tomorrow on a programme called Good Morning Britain. And the person who I'll be talking to is, works, uh, is part of an organisation called Transactual. And they're... Um, campaigning in the way that you described um, to have um, they want the NHS they, they want people to make use of GoFundMe to help them raise funds to get private surgery and they want also want the NHS to pay for private surgery because there's such a wait for treatment and of course there's a terrible feeling there of entitlement you know, you're entitled to have this immediate treatment. Now, of course, the NHS in, in, in the UK is in a terrible state. There's an article in The Guardian yesterday about children with all sorts of physical and psychological problems having to wait a year, two years for treatment. That's terrible. But the way to deal with that is not to demand that the, you get private treatment. It's to get the NHS properly funded, get, put an end to the cuts that there have been over about the last 10, 15 years and maybe redesign the service. It may need some redesigning, but it needs to remain uh, the kind of thing that it is. Um, 
but it's not going to be dealt with by demanding that individuals go for private treatment. That's not the way forward. That's the commodified way forward, rather than um, uh, joining up with people and saying, we join with you and we want to help the health service. Uh, we, we want to change the health service, campaign for proper resources and so on. This is separating yourself from other people and saying, we have a special right to get private treatment. Well, there's also the argument that I see online, people doing this comparative, who needs the treatment more? There's a wait list for people to have heart transplants. And then you get into what has been called the oppression Olympics. But then there's the more immediate issue of, I think we can agree that maybe having a liver transplant is more important than someone having their breasts removed. And I know that might sound harsh to people who say, oh, but that person can kill themselves. It's not, it's not any more important because it's, it, it's the wrong language. Because many of these individuals who want a mastectomy are not, um, they, as a clinician, we make a distinction between what someone wants and what they need. So someone may say, what I want is not to eat. We know that they need to eat. We accept they don't want to eat, but we don't accept that that's right, that it's going to be helpful. So, the, but in, in in this way of looking at things, this totally commodified version, there's the distinction we need and want evaporates. So I want a mastectomy, therefore I must have it. Well, we first need to find out whether you need it and whether it's the right form of treatment. And that's going to take a considerable amount of thought, reflection and time and doing nothing for quite a long time. No one should rush into having mastectomy. They should be helped to manage the pain that they have. And of course, there is no evidence at all of um, increased suicide. That's waived as a thing, but there's no evidence for that. It is true that there's a significant degree of suicidal ideation in the young people, but that's no different to the degree of suicidal ideation in young people who have complex psychological problems in general. And those who have gender dysphoria have complex psychological problems. So it's 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 a bit of a card trick to say their problem is only to do with them being trans. Trans that their, their gender dysphoria is a manifestation of many complicated personal uh, conflicts and problems over often over quite a long time, and um, these need to be you know properly thought about, not. What we don't do is act quickly. The demand is to act quickly. So that's why it's so different from liver surgery, because liver surgery, you have to act quickly. Because if you don't have a liver transplant, the person will die. No one's going to suggest, well, let's watch and wait to see if he needs the liver surgery, whilst he becomes increasingly jaundiced. So it's a completely inappropriate comparison. Well, it's also interesting where the social value is weighed in the sense of, I notice over the past 10, 15 years, maybe even 15, 20 years, there've been all these public announcements made to make everyone understand that people with depression suffer, that we shouldn't discriminate against people with X and Y psychological issues. We're supposed to be sympathetic towards people who are recovering from alcoholism or drug abuse, blah, blah, blah. You know the story. We see it everywhere. Today is Mental Health Awareness Day. Today is 
international day of depression or you know and sometimes i feel bombarded by the messages of my need to feel compassion when compassion is something that should emanate from the individual organically but let's leave that to the side we're being educated to feel all these things okay in the name of both what we see on the internet in terms of the trans issue get educated you need to get educated and then well you're not empathetic and being empathetic has become a badge of honor of wokeness and this is what worries me david we're living in this hyper surveillance era it is foucault's panopticon on acid everyone's looking at everyone else it's not just you have to read up you have to be more empathetic you've got to look up for these people they're killing themselves you would rather have a dead child than a trans child and this is what has driven the machinery of this madness for not just parents it's everywhere teachers are made to feel that they're going to kill their student if they don't use it, the preferred pronouns now while you say that you will use someone's name I will too. If you tell me your name's Louise, I'll call you Louise. But I draw lines at ideological indoctrination where I have to start saying everything you tell me to say as if this is mother may I. I want to be able to speak freely, think freely. I dare say that this psychological disorder has now become that forward slash totalitarian mandate to tell everyone what to do. Never before have I seen a group of people who are so oppressed by their psychological disorder where they're on the streets being able to try and crush someone to death, as we saw recently in Auckland, where they are able to tell people who to fire or hire. These are the lobbies that are commanding the neoliberal managerial class. They get brownie points for saying pronouns in their bio for saying the right thing at the podium and it's this snake eating its own tail where the narrative is coming out from the very same class that gets kudos for reproducing it so i can't even imagine how some of your colleagues who might have been more junior colleagues at the tavistock reacted to what they disagreed with but were afraid to speak out because they would be the first to go and maybe the first to never get a job again if they couldn't get the proper recommendation for their next post. We're in this hurricane of all kinds of prohibitions, public education. We're supposed to be sympathetic to everyone with every form of condition. But at the end of the day, the very people being ignored are well the one half of the population, women who are on the streets rightfully saying, hey, this has gone so far, our rights are being diminished, this is dangerous in these kinds of situations. And the people who are left, for instance, they're called trans widows, the women who've lived with men for 40 years, they've been married, had kids, and then they find out their husband is now identifying as a woman, but these women are not even covered. They're not discussed, they don't exist, there's no empathy for them, there's no even understanding that they might have mental health needs because i would i've talked to some of these women they found out their husbands were taking their clothes to cross-dressing parties to enact not only a woman but to enact them themselves they found out that their own life and identity became the mirror for their agp husband so is there not in this very odd way this collapse of that, that there's no more Chinese wall between the medical and the social in certain ways. 
not because doctors have willed it to be, but because the activists have torn that wall down? Well, I mean, again, you've said quite a lot. You know, so it's um, some of which I, I agree with, you know. But I, I think um, that there's a peculiar sort of hijacking of what starts off as something that's perhaps rather emancipatory or expresses some concern quite quickly morphs into a kind of tyranny. And when it's a tyranny, then there's an opposition to any thinking. And any thinking or any doubt, any expression of doubt, is regarded as an enemy to be crushed. And um, that's, uh, you know, we've seen that. In, in, lots of things start off in that, you know, I think some aspects of the trans movement probably started off in quite a positive way, wanting to make sure that trans people weren't discriminated against. But then it morphed into this, as you say, surveillance and tyranny and capture of society and has caused terrible damage. And that um, that is, is extremely regrettable. And how it happens, I mean, I'm sure it's a combination of many things, not least, you know, social media, the internet can allow this kind of surveillance. But also it's, um, see, it's much easier for organizations to tick lots of boxes to show how good they are in terms of recognizing people who are people of, of color, gay people, trans people, than it is to do anything about their working conditions. You mentioned homosexuality being removed from the DSM. This however, seems to be something because the masses are clamoring for it, <laughs> that this isn't going to go away very soon. And at the same time, that trauma, that, that discomfort, that dysphoria that some people do have, that is not all the masses on the street, that there is this, you know, true type of feeling of dis disconnect with the body. Might there be a day that that is covered by some other nomenclature, because one of the problems I have with having gender in the DSM at all is that gender is not only a sociological construct, it is a stereotype. What is a gender, if you were to ask me what a man is and what a woman is, I could only give you stereotypes. I could not actually describe you. And I've never met you in the flesh, but we all know men who are heterosexual and garden and they love to cook. But if you took out the heterosexual part and, and started saying they garden, they cook, they love fashion, many people would assume that's a gay man. But we all know that these are again stereotypes. And this is part of the problem of gender. You see, I think that the idea of there being fluidity of, gen of gender, the way one manifests one's gender is something I think that should indeed be celebrated. That's a kind of liberal culture. So that men don't have to be, you know, as you say, on trucks and gardening, they can be interested in cooking and fashion without being gay. They can be a bit, so to speak, you know, what might culture be called effeminate or woman-like without being gay. Um, and similarly, women uh, can express who they are in various ways. And we, we would hope that they don't feel the burden of cultural stereotypes. The problem is that the um, 
that sort of liberal expansion, which is at least there in sort of, you know, liberal urban settings, isn't much there in the countryside, but it isn't liberal urban settings. But that's the 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 paradox of the trans movement is that they've regressed to a binary. Whereas if a little boy, schools, you know, are informed that if a little boy wants to dress in a pink dress, well, maybe he's a girl. In other words, it's not that he's just playing. And maybe I'll close on this, that when I went to speak to, uh, speak at a conference of detransitioners, all the women who spoke, uh, it was only women that were there, and all the women who spoke, they were all um, regretted their transition. They'd all become gender non-conforming lesbian women. That's what they were, but they'd misunderstood themselves because they got so contaminated by the gender ideology. And one of those women stood up and she said, I stand for a generation of girls who have been robbed of their capacity to have an imagination. In other words, to imagine being a boy or imagine being a girl. Instead, that became, oh, maybe you are. So the culture concretized what might have been playful imagination. Thank you.